Well, I have some good news for you this morning. Football is back. <laughs> it's been a long wait. <laughs> you know, if you're a football fan for the past few months, you have uh, been watching training camp. You've been reading the articles, watching the trades, watching the draft, filling your time with all this information until football was finally back. And one of the things that I always find interesting about whether it's the draft or when any team makes a trade, and this isn't just football, this is all professional sports, when, when a team is looking to make that trade or to, you know, to get that first round pick or whatever, they, they don't just go and look at the skill sets. They don't just go and look at all the stats on the stat sheet. They look at all that stuff, but after they look at all that, after they look at performance, they look at the person, and they look at the person's life, and they ask the question, will this player fit our culture? Is this kid we draft, is he a good kid? Has he got good parents? Has he come from a good home? Has he stayed out of trouble? And why is it that they ask all of those questions? Why aren't they just looking at the stat sheet and its performance? Because the team knows that down the stretch, in the long term, that character matters. That how this person has lived will reflect on how they're going to continue to live, and it matters, even in football. So much so that they actually build into most of these athletes' contract a clause that allows the team to void the contract should they do something the team finds immoral. And why is that? Because the players reflect the team. The players reflect the organization. And if a player goes home and abuses his wife and the team is like, well, you know, he can really catch the ball good. So... I know, we, I know we don't like it when he hits his wife, but we can really catch that ball. If they do that, that reflects poorly on the whole team and the whole organization, and so they're not going to stand for it. Instead, they cut the player saying, we don't act like that, we don't support that team. This team doesn't support that, is what they'll say. You know, in the same way, sometimes if one of my kids act up or do something, and I kind of get on to them or I'm trying to teach them, one of the things I sometimes will say, and you might do this, is, Wilsons don't act like that. Because how they act out in public is a reflection on our family. And so when they're acting a fool, I said, Wilsons don't behave that way. So fix it. Because Wilsons act like this. Our family has a culture. Our family has a, has, has, has a, a way we live, and it looks like this. So get in line. And if this reality is true in sports and is true in our families, how much more true should it be in the church? What does it mean for us to belong, not to an organization, but to a church? Not just that we believe the same things, not that we just value the same things, but what does it actually mean for us to act like, to live out what it means to be the church? What does it look like? How do we know we know this, we know what it kind of means for us based off of what we call our church covenant. So since I got to our church, which will be five years next month, which doesn't seem like it's been five years, but five years next month I got here, my aim has been to help our church to grow deep and wide. 
We want to get more people. We want to share the gospel. See people come to Christ. We want to grow wide. We also want to grow deep. But in order to grow deeper and wider, we needed to get healthier because healthy things grow. We needed to get healthy from an organizational standpoint. We needed to get healthy from a theological standpoint. But also we needed to get healthy from an ecclesiological standpoint. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, ecclesiology is the, the doctrine of the church, our understanding of the church and what the church is. So we set out to do that by you know, doing things like creating a clear process for how people intentionally become members. They go through a class where they learn about our culture, learn about what we believe, learn about all those things. And then they have to have a pastoral interview where we hear their testimony, under, make sure they understand the gospel, make sure they have a clear uh, understanding of conversion. They've been converted from a genuine conversion experience. The next step in that process was that we would have a biblical view of church leadership. Right? And so we started raising up a plurality of elders so we don't have just one CEO pastor at the top, but we have the Knights of the Round Table, right? This plurality of elders, of pastors who are qualified men. I don't know what that was. <coughs> that was like a hiccup and a, I don't know. So we have these, these qualified elders raised up, right, to, to lead our church. And so now we are at the next stage of this development, which is deepening our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church, by taking our church covenant and membership more seriously. Because when you become a member of our church, you're not just joining a club. You're not just joining the YMCA. We are covenanting together. And we want to deepen our understanding of what it means to be a part of this family and to belong to one another. What it means to covenant together. We want that to be deeper and, and richer than joining the why. What does it mean for us to partner and covenant together in and for the gospel? So our elders have spent this past several months rewriting our church covenant, a covenant probably none of us in this room really knew. And so we said, hey, let's rewrite this, write it the way we want it. And over the next five weeks, I'm going to preach through each section of that new covenant so that it's really clear what it says, and then at our next members meeting, we are going to vote to officially adopt this new covenant. So that's kind of our plan. Uh, so when we're talking about covenanting together, we are talking about membership within the local church. We're not talking about membership in what we often call the universal church, that is, all Christians who belong to the family of God in all times and all places. We're not talking about that. Like we're talking about what it means to belong and covenant with the people in this room that we call Fellowship Baptist Church. And not everyone can be a, a member of this church. There are people who we would uh, agree are faithful Christians who will be in heaven one day with us, but we disagree on something like maybe the nature of baptism, like they want to baptize babies. Like we'll say, hey man, that's cool, but we're not going to do that here. So like we're probably at an impasse, you probably need to be at another church. So just because you're a faithful believer doesn't mean necessarily that we can come in together. Uh, and so that's not a hateful thing. That's not a, a, a mean thing or a rude thing. That is actually a kind of a loving thing because we're drawing a line. Hey, this is what it means for us to partner together in and for the gospel. Um, and so that those issues of difference don't ra rise up later and cause problems later. We're going to draw the clear lines now. This is what it means for us to partner in, in and for the gospel. This is what it means for us to come in together. We're going to agree to these things um, so that those problems don't come up later. We want to draw the lines now. 
But for those that agree with us, doctrinally, uh, and they join the church, and they've proven to be believers, they've shared their testimony of genuine conversion, um, uh, and then, doctrinal statement, conversion, and they agree to our church covenant. Having a church covenant is one of those things that make a local church a church. I want you to think about this for a moment. Have you ever thought about, like, what makes something a church? Like, what makes something a church versus if you have a Bible study in your home, why isn't that a church? Right? Like, so what makes a church a church versus something, just people getting together studying the Bible? Like, is it you got to have a steeple? Probably not. So what is it? Well, I want to give you the historical Baptist definition of what, it, what, is it, what a church is. This isn't just Baptist, but um, I think this is a helpful definition. A church is a body of believers who practice the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, have the two offices of deacon and elder, and who choose to covenant together. So a church is someone who is saying, hey, we're going to baptize people and we're going to practice the Lord's Supper together. We're going to recognize the office of elders or pastors who are going to have spiritual authority. We're going to recognize the office of deacon or our servants. And we are going to choose willfully to covenant together for the purpose of spreading the gospel and practicing the one another's of the scriptures together. So we are more than a big Bible study. We are more than just a big class. We are the church, the local church, a body of believers who have chosen to covenant together. Well, what in the world is a covenant, and what does it mean for us to covenant together? Like, what in the world is that about? Well, a covenant is a promise made between two or more people. You have no doubt heard about the covenants God has made with humanity, right? Like, you, you'll probably know that God made, you know, the Noahic covenant with the rainbow, and he's not going to flood the world again. You have the Abrahamic covenant, right? Like, God has promised to bless all the nations through his offspring. You've got these big covenants, but you also have covenants in the Bible between people. Like, for example, you have David and Jonathan who make a covenant together. And they say, hey, no matter what politically is going on in Israel, even though your dad's the king, but God's told me I'm going to be king, our friendship will come first. And we won't kill each other. And they make this covenant together. There's all kinds of covenants. Your marriage is a covenant that you make together. And so covenants are more than contracts because they're highly relational between individuals about relational matters. So as a church, when we covenant together, we are agreeing to live in a certain way toward one another. We are committing to one another that we're going to live before God in a certain way and that we are going to live and act toward each other in a certain way, specifically in accordance with the scriptures. This covenant together guides our actions. It kind of shows us, okay, this is what's expected of me. This is what I'm supposed to do. It guides our actions and it binds us together as a family who belong to one another, of people who joyfully choose to partner together in and for the gospel. And so our first clause of our new church covenant, I'm going to read in a moment, outlines some, some things that we should believe, like the, the scripture is our final authority. We should all believe that. Uh, but it also outlines some things we should do, like the chief aim of our lives should be to glorify God. But it is also outlining really the basis for our ability to covenant together, that we've got to all agree that we're going to try to do these things. Now, if our doctrinal statement outlines the doctrines we must hold, our covenant is expressing the life we must all strive to live. 
So the question before us today is, who gets to be a part of not just the global church, but this particular local church? Who gets to covenant with us? And who gets to partner with us in and for the gospel? And who, would, who, who, who is it that could come and choose to live out this covenant? Well, let me read to you the first section. It's in your worship guide, but also let me read to you the first section of, our, of the new covenant, and we're going to kind of walk through it. So it says, being rooted in the gospel in all we do, we will aim to glorify and enjoy the God of our salvation, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. We will submit to the authority of the scriptures as the final arbiter on all issues. There are four things I want us to see from this first section, four things about our covenanting together that we must all agree on and have the same kind of view in. Number one, to covenant together, we must have the same anchor, that we are all rooted in the gospel. To covenant together, we must have the same anchor, particularly that we are all rooted in the gospel. Today, we have a good Baptist sermon. I've got four points, and they're all alliterated with A's. You're welcome. And, and in doing that, I almost called this point the arrival because we all get into the church the same way. We all got to Christ, got into the family of God, came into the church the same way, by the same path. We all come by the blood of Jesus. None of you guys got into this family because you were good, because you were better, because you were religious, because you were all that in a bag of chips. None of us got in that way. All of us come by the blood of Jesus. That is our arrival. That's the only way we get to come into this family. Right? So that's how we got here. In and through the blood of Jesus. So the starting place for our choosing to come in together is that we've all come and believe the gospel. Like we, like we all believe and cherish the gospel. We are all Christians. And that may seem obvious that you can't be a member of our church unless you are a Christian. Um, but that may not be obvious. So I, I want to make sure I say that, right? Like, like you have to be a born-again believer, follower of Jesus to be a member of our church. You have to have your sins forgiven and been made alive. We cannot covenant together if we do not all have the shed blood of Jesus covering us. But the basis for our covenanting is also more than just our arrival. It must be our anchor that we are rooted in the gospel, Right, that, that our life source, our source of strength, our source of pushing us forward is the gospel. Because the gospel will produce in us and in our church what we believe is faithfulness to God. Right, like, like me and my wife, we, had, we took all, all five of our children to the dentist this week. Like you could have made a TV show about this experience. It was crazy. Um, and uh, if, you're a, if you work for a dental office, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, but it's just how I feel, okay, and you can't get all my feelings, all right? I hate the dentist. Because, because, <laughs> because they make you feel so guilty. Like, it doesn't matter how good you brush your teeth and floss and do all the things. Like, may, maybe some of y'all are just better at that than me, but you go in and they just, you get a lecture every time about how crappy you are, right? And you just feel guilty, and they think... That the guilt will motivate you to become better at those things, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't, guilt never motivates. Guilt might motivate you for a day or two, and then you're done. 
right? Guilt doesn't motivate. And we believe that in the church. Like, like guilt does not motivate you to repent of your sin, to, to trust Christ more faithfully, to follow him more deeper. Like, guilt doesn't ever get you. If you ever tried to guilt someone in the church, they come like one or two, once or twice and then they're done. You can't guilt people into following Jesus. It's not long-term sustainability. But if we're rooted in the gospel, the gospel, the grace of God actually does motivate. Like if the dentist would be like, hey, man, you're doing the best job you can. Let's just try to keep it up. Like, like whatever. I'd be like, okay, I got you, bro. I'll be back in six months. But they don't do that. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15.1. He says, now I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, in which you stand, present tense. So the gospel is not something that only new believers or lost people need to come to Christ. The gospel is something we received and it is the thing we stand in. You see, we don't simply come to the gospel once and we're done. The gospel is not the diving board by which we get into the pool. The gospel is the pool that we just swim deeper into. The gospel is what we stand in. It's what saved us, is saving us, and will save us. And so let me give you three examples of how being rooted in the gospel is, uh, is, is going to change us and produce this culture that we want. One, the gospel is our source of strength for accomplishing the commands of God. It's not guilt. Guilt's not going to motivate us to accomplish the commands of God. The gospel is. The gospel is our source of strength. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, our covenant requires that we live out the commands of God, individually toward God, but also toward one another, accomplishing what people in the scriptures call the one another's, right? Like serving one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, and on and on. That we're going to fight for unity and all these things. But how are we going to do that? How do we have the motivation to do that? How do we have the motivation to live holy lives outside of these walls? What's the gospel? If we are not rooted in the gospel, our obedience will be out of duty or guilt and not delight. And if your husband has ever come home with flowers on Thanksgiving or Mother's Day or your birthday, and you said, oh, thank you so much, and he said, well, it's, your, it's the day, so i got to do it, you're going to throw him in his face and say, try again, buddy, because you don't want anyone serving you out of duty but out of delight. And we don't want to serve God out of duty, but out of delight. And the gospel is what changes us to delight in him, not duty and not guilt. Or we just simply won't do it, right? When we are confronted with the reality that we are commanded to love our enemies or to forgive someone who deeply hurt us, deeply wronged us, we just simply won't do it unless the gospel or is, is it's what is motivating us and changing us to actually accomplish these superhuman things to forgive someone who's really wronged us or love our enemies. But when we're rooted in the gospel, we're changed deep in our bones, in our soul. We can see that we've been forgiven for so much, and so this person who's wronged me, I can forgive them this little thing because God has forgiven me of this. The gospel changes us changes our motivations. So we need the source of the gospel to actually live out these commands. And two, when, we, when we're centered on the gospel, we can actually rightly balance grace and law. Grace and law. You see, the gospel enables us to live on the knife edge, right, that super sharp point of a knife edge, without falling to one extreme or the other. Because apart from the gospel, we tend to either be legalistic on the one side or like free grace on the other side. 
we on the one side become like Pharisees who are hunting for anyone who's ever slightly messing up or slightly doing anything wrong. And like the Pharisees, we're always adding to God's law. Like remember Eve in the garden when God said, hey, don't eat from this tree? And the devil did what? God said, don't, you know, Eve said uh, to, to the devil, well, God said I shouldn't eat it or touch it. No, he didn't say you couldn't touch it. You could take that fruit and smash it, throw it all over the place. You just can't eat it. But we do the same thing sometimes as kind of these legalists. We add to the, add to the law, add, make things up. And so we start kind of being on the hunt. And anytime someone slightly messes up, we're like, gotcha, you got to stop that. But on the other hand, we can be all grace and, hey, you know what? We're just kind of like these hippies. Like, nothing matters. Everything's cool. You do whatever's right in your own eyes. Like, like in the land of the judges, man, just do whatever's right in your own eyes. You know, whatever you feel is right and good and true, you do that. And just all, you know, God's going to forgive and it's all grace. Both of those extremes are wrong. And the gospel helps us to balance on this knife edge of saying, no, we've died to sin, so how can we still live in it? But yet we're still sinners, and so we're going to fall, and there's grace and forgiveness. And we can balance that tension well, but only when we're rooted in the gospel. You know, alcohol is a great test case for this issue. Because when you think about alcohol, the legalistic person sees that other Christian uh, drinking and automatically looks down on them, thinks lesser of them, thinks they're bad, thinks they're wrong. Now, this might be a shock to some of you, I don't know, but, but the Bible never, ever condemns alcohol. It actually only condemns alcohol in one place. I believe it's in Isaiah. It condemns it for not being strong enough. The Bible never condemns alcohol. Actually, it, it, in some ways, it encourages it. Right? Paul tells Timothy, hey, you should drink some wine to settle your stomach. And so the Bible never condemns it. And so when we do, we're adding to the law. Now, the Bible condemns drunkenness. Right? That's clear. And so the legalist, anytime they see someone drinking, bad Christian. But the free grace person is like, well, you know, we're getting hammered every weekend. But you know what? God's going to forgive us. So, <laughs> No. And so the gospel centers us on that knife edge where we can actually live in this tension between enjoying the gifts of God and not abusing the gifts of God. And that's hard and that's uncomfortable and that's scary. But that's what it means to live in that tension of the gospel. The tension between freedom and legalism. And we've got to do that. The third thing that uh, being ruined in the gospel is going to do for us is it produces a gospel culture. It produces a gospel culture. A gospel culture is one where we all feel like we belong. Like we all feel like we're, we're welcomed here. When you come to church and you're around your brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't just hear the gospel preached or taught, but we experience the gospel through and in the relationships with one another. We experience the gospel in the tone people use with us and the way they speak to us and the way they treat us and are kind to us and loving and compassionate. Even when they call us out on something, it's in kindness and in love, right? Truth and love. Uh, this is kind of what Paul lays out in Romans 15, 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. as Christ. How has Christ welcomed you? Well, Christ has welcomed you into his family. He's not said, hey, you can come in, but you're going to be like, you know, lesser. You're going to be like the, I'm really trying to not say redheaded stepchild because, you know, Redheads, we love you. Uh, but, you know, like this lesser, you know, whatever. Like, we're, that's not you. You're in the family of God. been welcomed. You've been set on a throne as an heir to the kingdom. He's not said, hey, you know what, you can come in here, but you've got to make up for all that bad stuff you've done. 
He didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, man, come on in here, but you got some duty and some obligations to keep up with. No, he's welcomed us, and he's not just tolerating us. He's not saying, hey, come on in here, and we're going to put up with you. No. He has fully welcomed us into his family, radically loves us, embraces us, calls us a friend, calls us brother or sister, and he pulls us close to his heart. A gospel culture means I'm not walking, you're not walking on eggshells in this place because I don't know how people are going to treat me. Because I don't know how people are going to respond to me. When I failed, I don't know how people are going to react to my failure. We don't walk on eggshells. We don't show up in fear, worrying that people are going to look down on us, be critical of us. Instead, we show up knowing these people got my back no matter how foolish I have been. And sometimes we're really foolish. Sometimes we really make mess up. And, what's, and what happens in church all the time? People mess up and they run away from the church. Why? Because they're afraid that the church is going to reject them, judge them, not care for them. But what if instead we had this sort of culture that when people messed up, they knew this was the only place to run to? Because those people who know that I messed up, who knew I was wrong, will embrace me, welcome me, love me, care for me, serve me, help me. Right? That's what we want. That's a gospel culture. That these are the people to which I belong and these are the people to which I feel safe with. And loved. So the first thing that we must share as our basis for covenanting together is that we have the same anchor. And our anchor is in the gospel. We are rooted in the gospel, which will set the stage for all these things. Number two, to covenant together, we must have the same aim. Same aim, told you, good alliteration, second A. The same aim, to glorify God in all of life. To glorify God in all of life. Our collective aim as a church, but also as individuals living in the world, should be to bring God glory. Right? It should be to glorify God in all of our life. You may not understand this, but the person who is most for God's glory is God. God is for God and for his own glory. All that God does, everything God ever does, is first and foremost for his own glory. And that's a good thing, because for him to do anything less than to serve his own glory would be idolatry for him, if you think about it. And so his glory is also good for us, because redemption, his love, forgiveness, the cross are all things that ultimately bring him glory. But it bears saying, we don't actually, if you think about this, like we don't actually bring glory to God in the sense that we're not adding glory to God. It's not like God's glory meter is getting low and we need to add some to it, right? It's not like we need to give him more. God has all of the glory that he could ever have and all of the glory that there is to be had, God has it. He cannot receive any more glory because there is no more glory to be given because he has all the glory that one possibly could have. And so what we are simply doing is revealing it. We are showing it. We are displaying his glory. We don't add to it. But that begs the question, well, how do we glorify God then? How do we show or reveal his glory? Well, there are tons of passages that speak to this. Let me just read two to you. 1 Peter 4, 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's very grace. If anyone speaks, he should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do so with the strength that God provides. So that in all things, God may be praised, literally may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever. So in your service, 
you should bring glory to God. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which is my favorite. So what, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Right? So when we go to lunch in a minute, we're going to go eat lunch to the glory of God. We get and spend an entire sermon series talking about all the ways that we bring God glory. But allow me to try to make a sweeping generalization of a statement as to what our aim is in glorifying God. To live for and honor God in all that we do. That, I think, is a, kind of a sweeping generalization of what it means for us to live for the glory of God. That to live for and honor God in all that we do. If our aim is to bring God glory, that is going to affect the way we worship corporately. It is going to affect the way we treat one another. It is going to affect the way we serve one another. If we're for the glory of God, it's going to affect the way that uh, we serve the church. It's going to affect the way that we fulfill the commands of God. Then when we share the gospel, when we make disciples, when we are generous, when we are good stewards of the things God has given us. But it's also going to affect not just the things here at church. When you are living for the glory of God, it's going to affect how you go to work tomorrow. It is going to affect how you uh, uh, show honor to your boss even when he's a jerk. It is going to affect the way you treat your spouse and your kids and serve your family. It is going to affect the way you serve, love, and are gracious to your neighbors and show responsibility. If our aim is truly the glory of God, first, we would, we would be a church that is God-centered, not man-centered. So if our aim is the glory of God, it's going to affect, first of all, all of life. Right? There's not a, no stone unturned. It's going to affect everything. And so if we're going to be a church that does this, we've got to be a church that says hey, we're, we're centered on God, not man, which means anything that we do as a church or as individuals, our first question should not be, does this thing that the church is doing fit my taste? Does it fit my preference? Do I like it? That's not our first question. Our first question should be, does the thing the church is doing honor God and bring him glory? The church painted that wall that color, and I don't really like it. Our first question isn't, do I like the color of that wall? Our first question should be, does what the church is doing honor God and bring him glory? If it doesn't, you should speak up. But if it does, but the thing's just not your cup of tea, you should work on changing your heart and you should join in with the family. Doing all of those types of things reveal the glory of God. When you work hard for a terrible boss, it reveals the glory of God. When you have a good attitude and you work hard and you're faithful, you reveal the glory of God. When, when you uh, work hard unto the Lord, you are working for the glory of God. When you show forgiveness to someone who has wronged you, you are revealing the glory of God. You, when, anytime you do these Christian things, love your enemies, whatever, you are revealing an otherworldly sort of value, and it reveals the character and the nature of God, and therefore his glory. When you are living a holy life, a life both devoted to God and set apart from the world, people notice. People see you, and they think you're strange. Like, why don't you practice the same things we do? Like, why aren't you sleeping around? Like, why aren't you getting drunk with us? Like, why aren't you moving in with your boyfriend? Because they are not, uh, the, the world, see, they don't see those things as, as, as we do that are moral things but also destructive things. And we trust God when God says do this and don't do that. We trust him and we live set apart for our good and his glory. And the world sees that. 
they see you acting that way or not acting that way, and, they, and, they'll, and they'll be like, why? Why is that? And they might suppress the glory of God, but they'll see it. Why is this a requirement for our covenant together? Because this church cannot turn into a social club. We don't want to turn into a mere community outreach center. We don't want to be just a religious center. The church is the embassy in a hostile nation. We are ambassadors in a foreign land. We are citizens of another country. We are soldiers in the Lord's army. However you want to think about it, we are here on this earth and a part of this church for no other reason than for the absolute glory of God. And if we do anything less than that, we're missing the point. If we're here for anything less than the glory of God, we've missed the ship. And if we bring people into our family who are here for anything less than the absolute glory of God, then we will always be in a battle for what we should and should not do. We will be in a battle over tradition. We will be in a battle over preference. We will be in a battle over what is most God-honoring and effective. We will be in a battle over what I want and what I like and what I think instead of focusing on what God wants, what God likes, and what God thinks. And we will experience what has been labeled mission drift. This will slowly change our main purpose. And we might, we might grow. Like Think about this. Churches can grow really big really fast. But that doesn't mean they're faithful in glorifying God. Joe Osteen has the biggest church in the world. And I can tell you his church isn't glorifying God. It's dishonoring God. The YMCA first started out in 1844. And their mission was clear. To disciple young men into Christian, godly, mature men. But today, when you go to the YMCA, it is nothing more than a community center and a pool and a place to work out and have fun. And I love their racquetball courts, and I love the workout, and I love all those things, but they had a mission, and they lost it. Mission drift happens when you allow preferences and tradition and me and I and even sometimes things that we think would be more effective to trump seeking the glory of God first. So to come in together with, with us, for us to come in together, our aim has to be the glory of God here and in all of life. Now, we're sinners. We're going to miss that mark sometimes. We're going to fail to that sometimes. But our aim is to glorify God in all walks of life, from the church to our house to our work to our home, everywhere in between. A holy life set apart for God's good pleasure. Number three, to come in together, we must have the same attitude. Our joy is in the Lord. We must have the same attitude. The first question of the Westminster Catechism, which a catechism is a, is a tool, it's a question and answer tool that people have used over the centuries to teach children uh, the things of God. And the first question asks the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, we just talked about glorifying God, but also we want to enjoy him. Our joy is in the Lord. Now, joy is a byproduct of knowing Jesus, right? But it is also a command. It is commanded, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. To have joy in the Lord is a command. One of the fruits of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, is joy, right? And so even in the midst of, of trials and tribulations, we're commanded to have joy. James 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you meet various trials. There's great joy in serving the Lord and knowing the Lord. There's even joy in the midst of suffering. But sometimes we can be tempted to serve the Lord 
with no joy. We can serve the Lord and we can just be sour patches about it, right? And that actually sucks the joy from everybody else. Like, have you ever been around someone who is serving the Lord in some way? Like, let's say they're out there and they're pulling weeds uh, in, in, in uh, the flower beds out here, which, by the way, needs pulling. So if everybody gets motivated and wants to go pull some weeds, be my guest. But let's just say someone's out there pulling weeds, and you walk by and you go, hey, man, thanks so much for doing that. And they look at you and huff, and they say, well, no one else is going to do it, so I guess I am. Well, I don't think your joy is in the Lord. Right? No joy. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira from the book of Acts? (laughs) They didn't have the same attitude that everybody else had. Everyone else is selling their property, selling their possessions, all putting this big pot, having everything in common. Hey, we're the church. We're going to be together, take care of one another, do this thing. And Ananias and Sapphira pretend to do that because they didn't really have the same attitude. They didn't really want to do it. So they pretended to have that same attitude, and God killed them. So it didn't work out well for them. And I think often the reason our attitudes can be off in the, in the church is because sometimes we have a consumer relationship with the church. And I think this can be really at the heart of our problem. You see, when, when we go and we join the YMCA, we have a consumer relationship. I pay a due, you provide me a service. Right? I pay some money, you give me something in return. And so when something happens that I don't like, I can go complain about it. And then maybe if I get enough people to show up and complain about it, you'll change that thing. Right? Or if I decide I don't like it, I'll take my money elsewhere and I'll go join 24-7 Fitness down, down the road over here. Right? Because I don't like it. It's a consumer relationship. And sometimes that is the way we treat the church. We treat it like Kroger. That doesn't have an S on the end. It's just Kroger. We treat it like Kroger and we, and we say, you know what? I like Kroger, but when their prices are higher than Walmart's or whatever, I'm going to switch and I'm going to go to Walmart. Because we have a consumer relationship, and somehow that's, sometimes that's the way we treat the church. Instead of having a covenant relationship with the church, we have a consumer one. And so instead, we view the church as this thing of like, hey, I pay my dues, and I show up, and I get the service that I have been rewarded for, for what I've put into it. Instead of seeing the church as a family to which we are a vital member, we see it as this thing that owes us something. Well, when we view the church that way, and something happens that we don't like. See ya. I'm out. I'll go somewhere that does the thing I want, that I like. And that, that's not the body of Christ. That's not the church. That's not what we're called to be. We're called to covenant with one another, which means you become a vital member of the family, which means you have to take ownership, which means that you take on the burdens and the activities and the mission of the church, and it falls on all of us. Who gets to disciple those kids over there? It's not just the job of some people. It's the job of all of us. And so it's on all. Who makes sure these lights are on? It's not just the job of some of us. It's the job of all of us. It's all of our responsibility because this isn't a consumer relationship. It's a covenant one. And we do this with a joyous attitude. I was talking to a pastor this week at a, at a little church that I'm trying to help out. And, and he was telling me about this tech guy that they have and, and how they can't change anything or do anything. Because anytime he's like, I got him a new computer and he put it back in the box. Like, bro, we need a new computer. What are you doing? And it's like, this dude will serve faithfully, but he is just like always mad and angry and upset about everything. And it's like, bro, I'd rather have somebody who can't hardly do it and be happy about it. Because joy is contagious, right? And guys, Jesus is fun. Like, serving Jesus is fun. And we should have fun doing this thing together. And instead of 
just, you know, looking downcast and puckered lipped and all upset about whatever. Let's have fun and serve Jesus together because that's infectious and then more people want to be a part of it. That's the kind of church we want to create, a family that we belong to that is contagious because there's joy in it. So we have the same anchor, the same aim, and the same attitude. And finally, to covenant together, we have the same final authority. We all submit to the scriptures. The new covenant says we will submit to the authority of the scriptures as the final arbiter on all issues. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We are a congregational church which means the governing authority of our church lies within the members of its church, which is another reason why it's really, really important to get membership right because we're giving you spiritual authority over this whole thing. It's important that you would agree to our doctrinal statement and agree to our covenant because you're the governing authority, this church. Now, that authority has been delegated in part to its church's elders. That authority, however, can be cut off at any time if an elder disqualifies himself by moral failing or false teaching. But beyond the church's authority and beyond the elders' authority, all of us come together and submit to the authority of the scriptures. They are the final arbiter on all issues, the final say on all issues. What it says is true and what it says is final. The Bible is our foundation. It is our authority. It anchors us in an ever-changing world. The winds of culture will always change and blow. What was important to the world 30 years ago is, is problematic today. And what will be important to the world 30 years from now, I'm sure will now will look crazy, right? It's always changing. It's going to be completely different. And that becomes super problematic when the world is pressuring the church to change. When the world is pressuring the church to change or to update or to conform or whatever, it becomes problematic because we're always going to be changing to keep up with the world. But then our ideology isn't based on anything concrete. It's just based on the whims of the world. And we can't do that. Our ideology cannot be based on anything that is not concrete and outside of us. It must be based on the foundation of that word of God that is never changing. And so our values, our thinking, our understanding must come from directly from the scriptures. Like, we are not against racism because the world all of a sudden decided racism was a bad thing. We're against racism because the Bible puts every person's worth, no matter their skin color, in that the fact that they're creating the image of God. We are for women's rights, not because of the women's suffrage movement, but because the very first pages of the Bible see that Eve was created from Adam and therefore making her equal with him. We are pro-life, not because the Republican Party tells us that we should do that, but because the scriptures tell us that God did it us together in our mother's wombs. And so if we have a disagreement with one another, we don't run to books, and we don't run to blogs, and we don't run to talking heads. We run to the one book, the scriptures. And if the scripture is silent on an issue, and there is biblical support for two opinions, then we move forward in disagreement and love. But if we have a disagreement or someone has pointed out something in you that you need to change and you're like, I don't think so, and they show you from the scriptures that it is clear, that it is clear in the scriptures that I am wrong, the only good and right response is that in humility I repent and change course because my opinion is meaningless if it is not rooted in and governed by and in glad submission to the word of God. This may seem like an easy, obvious point to many of you. And for that, I am glad if it does, but I will caution you, because standing on the word of God is easy when it costs you nothing. 
It is easy to hold up the Bible as our authority when it costs you nothing, but it's really hard when it costs you friends, and it costs you family members, and it costs you promotions. And with the direction of the current, the current pendulum swing of the culture, the odds that you might co- it might cost you something to stay true to the word of God is only increasing. And so one of my commitments to you is to always do my best to faithfully bring the word of God to bear on our lives. No sugarcoating, no shying away from things, but facing the scriptures together head on, together conforming our lives continually to away from the world's influence, right? Because the world is influencing us. We got to come in here every week to, to kind of like, we've, we've, the world's brought us this way a little bit, and we got to bring ourselves back, realign ourselves with the word of God. And so we got to keep doing that. This is why most of the time I like to preach through entire books of the Bible because then I can't ignore anything. Because then it's not me picking and choosing, well, what do I want to talk to them about today, you know, and I'll make a series that's real fun and easy and not going to offend anybody. But when after this, I think we're going to go through 1 Corinthians. And when we go through 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of junk in 1 Corinthians, man. And i got to deal with it. I can't skip over it. i got to address it. And that means we're going to talk about the hard things and we're going to align ourselves to the word of God. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 4 that people uh, in the last days, which have been here since Jesus left, that, the la- that people will only want to hear what their tickling ears want to hear. They want to, their ears, they want them to be tickled. What feels good, what sounds nice. But the word of God is always calling us out of our comfort zone. It's always stepping on our toes. It's calling us to repentance. It's calling us to change. It's challenging our thinking. It's changing our lives. God's word is called a double-edged sword for a reason. Because it cuts past all of your defenses. It cuts past straight to our hearts where it lays us open. It fillets us open and speaks truth right where we need to hear it. And so... All of that to say, church, we want our covenanting together to be based on the mutual submission to the same final authority, God's word over every opinion, God's word over every popular movement, God's word over every best-selling new book, God's word over politics, God's word over my family's opinions, God's word over my opinions, God's word over every preacher, God's word over every preacher, including this preacher right here, God's word, uh, and his word alone is our final authority, God's word, not someone's interpretation of God's word, but God's word as it is actually clearly and intentionally said to us, we gladly submit to it. So to covenant together in this local church, we think we need to have the same anchor in the gospel, the same aim to glorify God, the same attitude of joy, and the same glad submission to the word of God. And then we can partner in and together for the gospel and belong, not to the why, where we change on a whim and we argue and, and we don't things we don't like, but where we are family and we belong to one another and we are safe here. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you that we get to gather and be together and we get to be family. Father, we're thankful for the reality that there are people in this family that are more family to us than those that are blood family. Because the blood of Jesus runs thicker in our veins than the blood of our last name. We're thankful that the church gets to covenant together, gets to bind our hearts and lives together. 
and that we have a standard and a goal and an aim that we're trying to reach toward together so that we can accomplish and fulfill and do the mission of God together so that we can serve and love and forgive and hold accountable and hold up and pick up off the ground together, together. So that we can practice the one another's, so that we can love and serve, so that we can do all that you've called us to do, not alone, but together. Father, we're thankful for our belonging. We love you. Help us to fulfill that. If you are here this morning and you cannot belong to this family because you do not have the anchor of the gospel, because you do not know Christ, run up here this morning as I stand over here to my left as we sing this song and say, Brent, tell me how to know Jesus. And we will welcome you with open arms saying, we're so glad you're here. Faults, warts, stains and all. God, we're thankful for our family. We love you. In Christ's name we pray all these people said. Let's stand together.